Well, this Lord's Day we come to consider again for the third time the subject of the comfort for the saints in times of tribulation, trouble, heartache, and worry. Last Lord's Day, what we saw was that the saints find comfort in the knowledge that God controls all things, and all things that happen come from His decree. The book of Job makes it clear that the tribulation Job suffered was from the Lord. The death of Jesus was a further example. The disciples could not understand why God would not stop the crucifixion of Jesus. They did not understand God's purpose in it. Meanwhile, Christ was doing the awful work to save His people from sin and judgment and bring everlasting life to all who trust in Him. One thing Job yearned for in his horrible trials was a day's man or an intercessor or mediator between himself and God. Job complained of the great inequality that exists between himself and the Almighty and wished there were someone who could plead for him. Believers have now what Job did not have. We have a Savior, a great high priest, our Lord Jesus. By the incarnation, we have God with us in the flesh. Our Jesus is both God and man, and therefore He is the perfect intermediary between God and man. Because Jesus was given a body in which He would suffer in the place of His poor sinful people, He has been perfected as our high priest. He has suffered in His humanity and is a merciful and faithful high priest to make reconciliation for the sins of His people. He can encourage and sustain His people because He Himself has suffered in the same trials and temptations as His people. In His humanity, Christ has fully experienced all our sorrows, trials, and temptations. Indeed, Jesus suffered in His body far worse than we do. He understands experientially our groanings, our pain, and our struggles. Therefore, He is very qualified to represent us unto God. So in our troubles, we appeal to Jesus for help. Isaiah wrote, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And so He was stricken by God on the cross, but it was for our crimes laid upon Him by God that He was punished unto death. In our place, Christ was to make Himself a sacrifice as God's Lamb for the sins of His people who trust in Him. It is an astounding truth that Christ was both the sacrifice offered and the offerer of the sacrifice as our high priest. Our daysman has a perfect case to argue on our behalf. He is a present offering in the holiest of places, and His wounds preach our redemption and His propitiation for all our sins unto God. Not only so, but our high priest has full sympathy for us, and therefore we are assured of mercy and grace for the asking of Him. Christ is touched with our infirmities. For He was tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin on His part. Therefore we come boldly to Him at the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help in times of trouble. 
Furthermore, Christ was perfected as our high priest in the things that He suffered, including His horror at the prospect of being made sin for us on the cross, for which He made supplications with strong cryings and tears unto His Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our high priest was made perfect by learning obedience in the things that He suffered. And because He has made our perfect high priest, He's the author of salvation to all His people. Christ learned by experience the fear and dread of His people in His own times of distress. Thus Christ is our sympathetic high priest. Christ has experienced how God perfects glorious things through all that we go through. Even if we cannot know how now, as our high priest, He gently leads us through to glory, even as He ascended to glory after He suffered. For us. Never forget that our high priest, the Lord Jesus, who will never forsake or betray us, knows what it means to be betrayed by the high priest. The high priest at Christ's trial betrayed the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He had done nothing amiss, had only helped the helpless and preached the perfect gospel, yet the high priest conspired in a dirty political scheme to put Jesus to death to preserve his own special place of power. When he ought to have been interceding for Christ, instead he was orchestrating a hoax of a criminal proceeding against Jesus. That wicked high priest falsely accused Jesus, then betrayed him into the hands of the pagan Roman tyrants. Think of it. The holy and just one, who is our Redeemer, suffered injustice and betrayal at the hand of Israel's high priest. So we can surely know that our great high priest will never betray us or fail us in his duty to us because he knows by personal experience what it means to be betrayed by a high priest. We can surely take great comfort in our high priest and call upon him in times of distress and need. He is the sympathizing Jesus. Now, this Lord's Day, I want to speak on the subject, the God of all comforts. One thing that exacerbates our tribulation is when we see wicked men prosper and triumph while we and other good people suffer. You know, I thought of some examples of this. You think about the victims of the Nazis or you can think about the victims of the Khmer Rouge, or the victims of Joseph Stalin, the victims of slavery in the South, of any other sort of case where innocent people are crushed under the weight of evil. You think about those cases, how they look around and they see the wicked people who are prospering. They're getting away with it. They're rich and comfortable and powerful. They don't worry about the problems that confront the poor and the helpless, much less their victims. They're the ones that put them to grief rather than have sympathy for them. And the victims watch and they see evil apparently triumph. And the perpetrators enjoying themselves. You think about 
the poor helpless victims of war. How they are trying to live their little lives as best they can and now on top of the regular troubles and trials of everyday living, they have to put up with bombs and no food, shortages, water cut off, being homeless, fleeing under cover of darkness, always subject to being randomly killed, if not worse. You think about those people in the Ukraine who were up until Christmas time or later just living their normal everyday lives and now their whole country's been pounded into oblivion and there's nothing they can do to stop it. Some of them have resisted, but it's difficult to resist against an army bent on destruction while the rich and the powerful are exempt even of the Ukrainians. People with the money can just pick up and leave, can't they? They can fly to London or Zurich or Abu Dhabi or the United States and wait it out, can't they? with their bank accounts, much less the evil people that are carrying on all the carnage and destruction around them. They murder and they kill, and it seems that if they are in charge, nothing bad happens to them yet, does it? And this is what the psalmist in Psalm 73 laments so greatly. We read it this morning, but we'll read most of it again. Truly God is good to Israel, even as such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their deaths, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walketh through the earth. There is in this description of these people the outward appearance to the Lord's people that wicked people are getting away with it, aren't they? Nothing seems to disturb them. Why, in their death, even, you know, they're not like other people because they live with a luxury that their evil has brought to them. I guess they get the best medical care. And they don't live in squalor and die on the street. Why? Because they are taken care of, and so it's not fair. And notice it says that his steps had well nigh slipped because he was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They are prosperous and it causes the Lord's people sometimes to be full of envy. And the argument is, of course, that well, if wicked people can have such benefits, then what's the point of being one of the Lord's people? What's the point of doing good? It seems like it's just costing us. It's not giving us any benefit. And that is a common thought that the devil, I think, sort of slips into our minds on occasion to envy the wicked. It seems like there's benefit in it short term, doesn't it? Seems like it. And notice it says that they speak wickedly concerning oppression. In other words, they're all in support of oppression. They're on the side of evil. 
they're not out there fighting for the truth and for honor and for justice. No, they uphold the evil of the society against the helpless. But then look at what it says about the Lord's people. Verse 10, for example, Therefore His people, that's the Lord's people, return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. There is a squeezing, you see, of the Lord's people. There's sweat, there's teardrops, even of blood that comes forth because of the oppression of these people. And then at verse 13, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. It hadn't gotten me anything, he's saying to himself. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. And if I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. So all of this caused great perplexity in the heart of the believer when he looks around and sees how the wicked and the oppressor seem to have the better deal of it in this life. He asks, does God even know about it? At verse 11, and they say, how doth God know and is there knowledge in the Most High? It's almost as if to the world you say that God hasn't even taken notice of it. He's very far away. They hope he's distracted. The wicked are and doesn't see anything, because if he saw something, surely he would do something to stop it, wouldn't he? So therefore, they figure they've gotten clean away with it. And the righteous look at it, and it looks that way to them too. Doesn't God see what's going on here? Why didn't he do something? But the cure for God's people is seen in this, to worship God and to trust in his power to set all things right. Look at what it says at verse 17. I thought to know this, verse 16, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into destruction? As in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one waketh, so, O Lord, When thou wakest, thou shalt despise their image. Notice that he gets relief from his oppressive thoughts when he goes into the sanctuary to worship the Lord. When he turns his mind not upon the wicked and what they are getting away with, but rather he begins to contemplate and to worship the God of all power who has made all things when he goes into the sanctuary and considers the Lord, then, you see, then he understands the end of the wicked. That God has set them in slippery places. You know, a lot of times when you're in in a slippery place, you only know it when you fall. You know, you're walking along and you're saying, everything's fine. Hear the birds. Look at the sunshine. Whoops! and your feet slip out from under you, and then you realize that everything wasn't exactly as you thought it was. There was a slippery place, and you just slid on it. And this is the way it is with the wicked, you see. Everything's going fine until God knocks their feet out from under them. And then that's the end, you see. There's no getting up. The Lord set them in slippery places, 
We just have to wait till the slide happens. Have you ever watched any of those videos on Facebook where they have this music that says, Oh no, oh no, oh no. And basically these people are going along their life and all of a sudden, wham, something bad happens to them like a car plows into them or, or they slip and fall or some sort of unforeseen disaster just falls on them like a flash. And that's what he's saying here, you see. That's the way it is with the wicked. Thou castest them down into destruction. They are brought into desolation in a moment, utterly consumed with terrors. At least from the point of view of the wicked, it's almost like God was asleep, then He woke up and saw what they were up to, and then wham! Of course, we know that God wasn't asleep. He that watcheth over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps, the psalmist sang. And so it is with our troubles and with the wicked around us. The Lord's not asleep. He knows exactly what's going on. Read Job and listen to him. He not only knows it, he is behind all of these things. And he is upholding his people. And at the moment that he determines, the wicked shall be turned into hell. The image here, though, is of a person who's asleep and then he wakes up and sees something, and it's abhorrent to him. That's the way it works out from our vantage, is that God sees these wicked, and He abhors them, and utterly casts them down, as in a moment. Now, the rebuke that we give our own hearts because of our forgetfulness of God's power is seen starting at verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. That is before God. When we see the reality, rather than pity ourselves and rise up in anger and fury in our minds against these great injustices and unfairnesses, when we see it from the Lord's perspective, when we cast our eyes upon God, and we look at it from His direction. Then you see we realize how foolish we were and how we're almost as dumb as a beast before God. We got no spiritual discernment it seems in times like this and it shames us. But notice the result of that. God has mercy on us even if we are before Him like beasts. Nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Now, isn't that the right attitude to have before our Almighty God? That even though we are as lowly beasts in His presence, with our foolishness, with our short-sightedness, with our lack of trust, our scarcity of worship and praise. Yet the Lord holds our hands. Yet the Lord is ever with us. Yet He will receive us into glory. Yet He will guide us with His counsel. That is through the Holy Spirit and through His Word. Think about the blessedness of this image. It's like a shepherd 
who takes care of his poor beasts, you see, the sheep. They're foolish, they're frightened, they're illogical, and they can't understand or hear anything you say to them hardly. And yet the shepherd talks to them. And yet the shepherd guides them. And yet the shepherd protects them. And yet the shepherd carries the weak ones in his arms, you see, even though they are but beasts in his sight. And this is the care and compassion that God has for His people. No matter how lowly we may be, no matter how lowly in our minds we may think ourselves, yet our God holds our hand, is ever with us, brings us to glory, leads us by His counsel. And then notice, we are to take encouragement in our God, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There is no other. There is no other but our God for us. And if we turn our gaze upon other people or upon the princes of this world or whatever the case might be, we will take our gaze off of the God who is the only one for our help, the only one who can save us. But notice what the purpose, notice the purpose of this teaching, this incident which the psalmist first begins to contemplate and then comes to an understanding when he enters into the presence of God in the sanctuary. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near the God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Notice what the consequence of this entire meditation is. The purpose of the perplexity of the psalmist. There is a purpose in it. There was a reason why the Lord was behind his perplexity and his envying of the wicked. Why? What was it? Because it is good for me to draw near to God. That drove him to draw near to God, you see. He went into the temple to worship. Then he began to understand there was a purpose behind his perplexity and his envy. The Lord ordained those things so that his mind might be turned by the Spirit unto the reality and the truth and the power of God and the salvation that is in God. So whenever we are in trouble or we are oppressed by the success of the wicked and our own failures, our own poverty, our own loss, there's a reason for that. It's of the Lord Jesus that we should turn to Him and see His mighty power to save, and understand the end that He has promised to us, so that we might worship God. He is the God of all our comforts, and even our discomforts, you see, are used by Him for His glory and for our good, and all these things. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 gives almost a recipe for the comfort of believers. And I wonder if you've noticed this. Probably be a good idea to print this chapter out. 
make a few notes on it. 1 Thessalonians 5, he starts out by talking about the judgment that will come to the wicked. At verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they, that is the wicked, shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Well, this, you see, is a repeat of what the psalmist said in Psalm 73. There is a day of judgment coming that the wicked are oblivious to that's going to come suddenly in a time when they think there is peace and safety and there's going to be nothing that can stop it like the travail of a woman. You know, when a woman goes into labor, there's really nothing you can do to stop it. It's going to come. And no matter how hard you struggle or I don't know if there's any drugs they can give them to de-induce labor, but it's like an avalanche, you know. There's just nothing that can stop it. It's going to continue to completion. And that's the way judgment is. There won't be anything they can do to forestall it or put it off. It will come down like a guillotine blade against them. But there is a promise of salvation, you see, for the believer. Look at verse 8. But let us who are of the day, as opposed to being of the night, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. So our approach is not to be oblivious like the wicked, unknowingly awaiting their impending destruction but rather consciously to understand that we are not for destruction. We are for salvation. We have not appointed to wrath like the others, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Now notice that salvation is by our Lord Jesus Christ, not by ourselves or the good deeds of others or the strength of man. No, it's by the Lord Jesus and specifically by the death of the Lord Jesus. It is by the death of the Lord Jesus. Salvation by the Lord Jesus who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we should live together with Him. You see, even now we're living with Christ. We're alive with Christ. We've been raised with Him in His resurrection. We've been made new creatures. We're alive with Jesus even no matter what troubles we find ourselves in, no matter what discouragements and so forth. We're alive with Jesus. And it's all of our salvation is due to Him, not to anything we do, not to anything others do. And there's a duty to comfort one another. Look at verse 11. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. You see, we're to comfort each other by reminding each other that we are not appointed to wrath, but unto salvation by our Lord Jesus who died for us, who we live with, who we live in. This is our comfort. And this is what we're to remind each other of. That's why we have church. That's why we gather around the Lord's table. That's why we sing praises and pray for each other and praise the Lord and remind each other of how much God has loved us and that He gave His Son that we might live in Him. So we have a duty to comfort one another. And then he goes on to discuss the means by which we comfort one another. 
We're to comfort one another and edify one another. And then he talks about the means, one of the means. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and to be at peace among yourselves. You see, this is the method by which, or one of the methods by which the Lord's people in the church, in the congregation, comfort one another, is that they have teachers and preachers and ministers who try to lay before the people the truth of God's Word and the comforts which are found in God's truth and in the Gospel and to admonish and correct errors, people trailing away, trying to be distracted away from the faith and from what God promises. But then notice what the result is to be at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among the brethren. So this will be the consequence of remembering what God has promised. Remembering that He has provided salvation and everlasting life which begins now. The everlasting life is now because we're alive in Christ now because He died to save us. And that we are to comfort one another with these truths and that the Lord has ordained people to help lead in that comfort and to lead in that instruction and teaching and to recall from the Scriptures all the truth of these things. The result of this is that we are to be at peace one with another. You can't have a church or a congregation where there's comfort for the saints if it's overwhelmed by fighting and bickering and disputes among each other. You remember what Jesus taught, that we're to love one another. Even as the Father loves the Son, and as the Father loves us, and the Son loves us, we're to be entangled up in that love between the Father, Son, and the Lord's people. And that way in the congregation of the Lord's people, there will be peace instead of bitterness and fighting and argument. Be at peace among the brethren. Verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. So you see that the unruly will help to destroy the peace in the congregation. That's why they're to be warned. The feeble-minded are to be comforted. The weak are to be supported. The brethren are to help each other and to comfort each other. To be patient towards all men and not render evil for evil. Of course, that's one of the reasons that peace is destroyed is when people repay evil for evil. Remember the Lord Jesus taught us that we should render good for evil. Thereby we shall heap coals of fire upon their heads. That we're not to return evil for evil amongst the Lord's people or amongst any people for that matter. Then there is Paul's exhortation that we're to rejoice evermore. Be rejoicing. And you know if you are full of something other than rejoicing, then you will not have this peace and this comfort if you're fretting about evil people and evil deeds, just like the psalmist said in Psalm 73. You're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in all the good He has done. Rejoice in all the good that He is doing. And then it says, pray without ceasing. We're to pray 
all the time. We need to have an attitude of prayer even as we walk through our daily labors and travails. There ought to always be a ready prayer upon our lips to our God. And if you can't think of anything to pray for with regard to your situation, then pray for somebody else's situation. Pray for the praise and the glory of God. Pray in in a worshipful way towards our God and towards the Lord Jesus who died to save us. And then it says, be thankful for everything. Well, there's a real problem. How can we be thankful for the bad things? That's a tough one, isn't it? And yet the Scriptures say we're to be thankful for everything. Be thankful in everything, give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's not only His will that we be thankful in all things, but all things are the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. We can be thankful because whatever it is that we're experiencing, it's from the hand of God, just like in Job. Just like Job knew. We need to know that. Whatever it is that befalls us, whether it be good times or what we consider to be ill, it's to be thanked of God because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us that these things should happen for our good, for His glory. God is working good for us in whatever it is He has brought along our path. Quench not the Spirit and despise not prophesying. You see, the methods that God uses to direct our paths are not our own fleshly desires, but rather the promptings of the Spirit that dwells in us. Remember, God has given to us the Holy Ghost to indwell us so that our hearts might be knit together with God. The Spirit's promptings are to be what directs us. That's why Paul says don't quench the Spirit. You're supposed to yield to the Spirit, not yield to your own fleshly desires. And despise not prophesying. Now, the Spirit is the internal input, and prophesying, which I would take to be preaching and teaching, is the way in which God has ordained that we should have the Lord's truth communicated to us externally at the mouth of others. The method that God uses to direct our paths. And as to the latter, that is the prophesyings, while we're not to despise them, we're nevertheless to prove all things. You see what it says next. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. We're to be good Bereans. That doesn't mean that just because somebody preaches some off-the-wall thing, we should just embrace it and run with it. YouTube is full of false teachers who are prophesying, and some of it's so ludicrous that it's easy to see through, but a lot of it is very subtle and very false. And that's because it's not from the Scriptures. It's from distorted and twisted Scripture. Or not even from the Scripture at all. And yet so many men will go after those things. So we're to listen to the Spirit in us. We're to listen to the preaching and the teaching. But we're to test those things to make sure that they're in conformity with the Scriptures. And we're to hold fast to that which is true to the Scripture. And not let it be taken from us, not let it be taken from us by the cares of this world or the thoughts of our hearts. And then it says we're to abstain from all appearance of evil. 
if it appears to reasonable people that what you're doing is wrong, is a sin or dishonor, then it's probably best to stay away from it. Much less from actual evil. Of course, we're to abstain from actual evil. But there is a care that we put a clear markation around ourselves to separate from that which is evil. And then notice it says at verses 23 and 24, then the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless, under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. You see, God will be faithful to sanctify and to preserve blameless His people until the Lord Jesus comes. This is the prayer that Paul had for the believers. And it's a prayer that will be fulfilled for the Lord's people. He will sanctify us. He will conform us to the image of His Son. And He will present us blameless before Him when He comes one day in power and in glory. Now ultimately, it is the Lord who is the comforter of the saints. If you look at Second Thessalonians 2 at verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Chosen by God to salvation from the beginning. That's our happy lot, we who've trusted in Jesus. And it says we're bound to give thanks always to God for you because you are brethren beloved of the Lord. In all of our trials and tribulations, we must lay hold on that truth that we are beloved of God. We are beloved of God. He has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. But then notice that there is a present operation, the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Even though we were chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen from the beginning unto salvation, Yet, the salvation is worked out in us by the sanctification of the Spirit. He indwells us and we are marked as holy unto God. And He also works to sanctify us progressively. Also, there is faith and belief of the truth. These are the things that work out the everlasting purpose of God to choose us unto salvation. We Give thanks to God for choosing us unto salvation. We ought to always give thanks to God for that. Like Isaac Watts said, Why was I made to hear His voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. So we ought to give thanks to God for choosing us unto salvation and marking us holy unto God by the Spirit and by faith expressed in our hearts unto Jesus. And notice he says, called by the gospel. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. This is the mechanism by which all this is operated is that the gospel is preached. We hear it. And in our hearts and lives, all those operations unto salvation which God 
has before ordained us to be in, bring us unto the reality and the experience of that salvation to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will obtain the glory of Christ. Isn't that astounding? No matter what our troubles are in this world, no matter what our trials and tribulations, Christ is preparing us for glory. He's preparing to plant in us this glory. And of course, we have the down payment of it with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But one day, there will be a great glory in the resurrection that we will enter into, that Christ will put upon us. You remember Paul said in another epistle that He will conform us to His image by that power by which He conforms all things to Himself. And look at what it says. He is preparing for us a glory to clothe us with. And you remember what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the suffering of this present life is nothing to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed, that shall be revealed in us. And so we are told to hold fast at verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. In light of all this glory, in light of God choosing us unto salvation, in light of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in light of His sanctifying power, in light of the faith that He's given us in the Gospel, that we are to hold fast to these things, to lay hold on Christ and all of His beauties and all of His wonder and all of His sacrifice to take away our sin. And so we are loved of God the Father. It says in verse 16, Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God even our Father, which hath loved us, hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. You see, we're loved of God the Father. We're loved by His Son, the Lord Jesus. And all of this is by grace. It's His gift. He's given us everlasting consolation and good hope. See, we've already got an everlasting consolation and a good hope. We just forget about it sometimes. But the Father and the Son have already given us everlasting consolation and good hope. And it was a gift of grace. It's not something that we can generate in ourselves. It's something that He has laid upon us by the bloodshedding of Christ. He calls upon us to remember that they comfort our hearts. The Lord of glory comforts our hearts. God our Father comforts our hearts and establishes us in every good word and work. You see, if we need comfort, we ought to pray to the Lord Jesus and the Father to comfort our hearts just like Paul does and to establish us, to make us to be obedient in every good word and every good work. Now, ultimately, all of our comfort and all of our hope comes from the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. This is the root of it all. It all goes back to that. If it hadn't been for Jesus dying to save us, 
We'd have no comfort. We'd have no everlasting consolation. We'd have no good hope. We'd be just like the lost world. But because He chose us from the beginning, and He wrought in us by the Spirit, a sanctification and faith, and because it is His purpose that we should be comforted, and we pray He will comfort us, nevertheless, ultimately, Christ's death for us is the comfort. He is the source of all comfort. We celebrated each Lord's Day, reminded of the words of that precious hymn, He saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. For me He bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. To Him I owe my life and breath and all the joy I have. He makes me triumph over death and saves me from the grave. This is a representation and an understanding and a giving of thanks to the God of all comfort for His people. And let's remember where our comfort comes from. The dying of the Savior. The shedding of His blood to make an atonement for it. Take away our sins. Set us right with God. Give us peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table for the great comfort that it brings to us. A comfort that is an everlasting comfort that shall never perish and never end. Oh, that we would not allow our eyes to be dragged off of this glorious comfort celebrated in these elements to the success of the wicked, to the troubles that we face, to all of our tribulations, but rather to lay hold on this great comfort around this table. Let's give thanks for the bread first that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You have comforted us in our Lord Jesus. That You have comforted us by His discomfort at the cross where He laid down His life, where His body was torn for us and pierced with many a thorn. And where the spear broke into His heart, Lord, and where all of our sins that we should have been judged for were laid on Him. Thank You that You have reconciled us unto Yourself by the body of Christ broken for us. Thank You for this bread that He left us to comfort us with the comfort that only His dying could bring us. We thank You that He was willing to be in great agony and woe for us that we might be in great joy and happiness for all eternity. And we thank You for the way in which You brought each of Your people unto Jesus and caused us to trust in Him. Help us to keep in mind the sacrifice of Christ, no matter what trouble befalls us during the next week, that we would remember what Jesus did and that it would bring us great joy and comfort. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. I'd like to ask My Father to give thanks for the cup. And the Scriptures tell us after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. 
And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. For the remission of sin, do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 142. Number 142, According to Thy gracious Word in deep humility, this what I do, O Christ my Lord, I would remember Thee. Thy body given for my sake, my bread from heaven shall be. Thy testamental cup I take, and thus remember Thee. Number 142.